All right, everyone. Thank you so much, David, for leading us in that time. How important is praise and worship in a time like this? You know, I believe the word speaks to our minds. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Paul says in Romans. But I think, again, singing and praise and worship does something to the heart. It softens us up. It prepares us for the word. And I also think it helps us to deal with our emotions. I don't know about you, but I've been watching the recent events uh, very closely. I mean, going back months to the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, and then just when it looks like, you know, maybe we're slowly starting to come out of that, we had the uh, murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, and then you have um, the responses to that, and, and now there's rioting and looting, and just about every major city in the United States, and then and then people are expressing their 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 thoughts and opinions in every which direction, and there's just all kinds of chaos around us. And I I think our our minds, the things that we think, and our our feelings, our emotions can easily just become tangled up, and it's hard to sort of unravel them and figure out, you know, am I am I thinking clearly about this? Am I mainly feeling, or am I not feeling when I should be, and I'm just thinking? And and I believe, again, church is designed to be able to speak to our minds as well as our hearts. So I know I was just very, very looking forward to today's time of, of praise and worship, and I'm also looking forward to preaching from God's Word today. Again, I, I believe it's it's vital, um, you know, it's always vital, it's always essential, but again, I um, I know it's probably cliche to say, but I believe it's more essential now uh, than ever. I really do believe that. So what we've been doing normally is going through the book of Exodus, but for a couple of reasons, we're going to put that on pause for today, and we will pick up there next week. Um, the two reasons we're going to pause... Uh, number one, this is Pentecost Sunday. Um, again, in uh, many newer church traditions, so Calvary Chapel would be an example, a lot of non-denominational churches, uh, they don't observe what's called the church or liturgical calendar. Um, and, and that's an extra biblical calendar that's been followed by by many churches. I, I don't think it's wrong at all. I think it I think it can be actually very good, um, and so maybe some of us, uh, it, it would be helpful to rediscover that. But if you follow the church calendar, what they've done is they've taken a lot of events in the New Testament, and they've centered the calendar with various celebrations and feast days uh, around that, just kind of like you see in the Old Testament, all kinds of feasts and celebrations and gatherings that Israel would celebrate to remember things God has done. So the early Christian church began to take events from the New Testament and even events from its life as a church after the New Testament, and they began arranging the church calendar in such a way. And one of the things that they observed was Pentecost Sunday. And in the UK, I know it's called Wit Sunday, but Pentecost Sunday is the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the original disciples in the upper room at Jerusalem. Many people believe this is really the day in which the New Testament church begins, that the church is the Spirit-filled body of believers. And if that's the definition of the church, the Spirit-powered, the Spirit-filled body of believers in Jesus, then they are right in pointing to Acts chapter 2 as the genesis of the early Christian 
church. So that's one reason. I, I believe it is a it's a powerful uh, it's a powerful reminder of who we are as Christians. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you're wondering, you know, what are Christians? What is the church? Uh, again, the church can make mistakes. The church can add on a bunch of additional things down the road as time goes on. And sometimes the church can forget who they are. And that's why we always want to go back to the Bible, and that's why I think it's important to even acknowledge uh, the historicity of these various events, to acknowledge who is the church, when did it begin, how did it begin, why did it begin, and that may cause us to experience renewal and revival in our own churches because we're being reminded of who we are meant to be. Because sometimes in life, you and I can know who we are at some point, but we can get lost along the way and we we can forget our true identity and so it's so important for us as believers to go back and to take a look at Acts chapter 2 and what happened on Pentecost. Now, the second reason is because again, like I shared, I've been keeping up with the news, maybe maybe more than I should to be perfectly honest with you, and and I've been overwhelmed and grieved uh, by by everything that I'm seeing. It's I'm not picking one thing and saying, "Oh, I'm grieved by this, but not this," or "I'm grieved by this, but not that." I'm grieved by everything that's going on. I'm grieved by everything uh, that is going on. And I really wanted to speak to what is going on. And so I was praying about that and praying about, you know, should I stick with Exodus? Should I pick another text that deals with some of these specific things? But as I thought about it, when you look at Pentecost and you look at the birth of the church, I believe that it gives us a roadmap to who you and I are to be right now at this very historical moment. And so would you please now at this time open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage as a whole. It's a little bit of a lengthy one. I'm I'm not going to go into detail on all the verses in our teaching time, but I would like to read the whole thing because I think it's very, very important. So Acts chapter 2, go ahead and open up there. And please follow along with me now as I read the word of God. Beginning in verse 1, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we each hear in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocked, saying, they are full of new wine. 
But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning, and we are in need of your love. We are in need of your counsel. We are in need of your wisdom. We are in need of Jesus. 
We need to see him more clearly. We need to love him more dearly. We need to make our hope for unity and peace in this world to be in Jesus. And so, Lord, it is my prayer right now that every single one of us joining together online would be brought nearer and nearer to the Lord who bought us. Lord, I pray that you would reveal any sin that is in us, that your Holy Spirit would use the Bible, you would use the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, to reveal to ourselves that which is not fitting of the kingdom of God. If there is any wicked way in us, we pray you would search us. You would search our hearts. We know that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And so, Lord, we do not in pride assert that we are perfect. Rather, we acknowledge you alone are perfect. That our salvation lies not in our good works, but in the good works of Jesus Christ. And so we can admit at the same time that we are saved, and yet we also are in need of saving. So, Lord, would you reveal to us the things about us that need to be changed, that are wrong, attitudes, actions, that we would be open, we would not be hard-hearted against you or your word. We also pray, Lord, that as you transform us and grant us victory in our hearts, that you would enable us to be victorious out in the world. Lord, we know that the world is full of darkness, decay, and death. Violence is all around us on every side. And Lord, we just pray that we would be so radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit from above that we are able to go out into the world as the Spirit-empowered body of Christ, ready to bring the hope and healing of Jesus, our Savior. So we pray for a blessing now. I pray that you would bless the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart as I share the word with your people. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, so Pentecost is the Greek name, meaning 50, so 50 days after Passover, and it's the Greek name given to an Old Testament festival called Shavuot. Shavuot is also called the Feast of Weeks, and initially in the Bible, it was a celebration of harvest. It was the idea of acknowledging that God is your provider, that Yahweh, the Lord God, the Lord that saved Israel out of Egypt, he is their provider. And it was important that that doctrine, that belief, be reinforced through celebration and practice. Because Israel would be tempted over and over when provision was scarce, when it looked like they might not be provided for, it was so easy for them to look back to Egypt and to begin looking to the false gods in hope of provision. And so part of the point of the Feast of Weeks and, and the celebration of harvest is giving your first fruits. So remember, first fruits didn't just mean literally the first. It also meant the best. That, that idea was intertwined. Those aren't two different ideas. Your first and your best belong to God. Now, why is that? That was an action that, that one would take. Why is it? Why do you give your first and your best to God? Because you're confessing that God, there's only one God, and he has given you everything that you have. Everything that you have belongs to God. So one of the things being done here is, is Israel is being broken of the false idea that the things that you have are yours. 
They are yours to decide what you will do. What the Bible teaches is, no, the Lord owns heaven and earth. Everything is his. Whatever you have, you've been given as a steward. You are a steward, a manager, responsible to the Lord or master who gave those things to you. And so one of the ways, because you can say that, you can say, oh, sure, I believe the Lord is my master. He's my provider. He gives me everything. But it's another thing to believe that and live it out in action. And so one of the things Israel would do would acknowledge that God is the God of the harvest. He is the one that gives them everything they have. And a way of acknowledging that practically was to give their first and their best. So it's also called the Feast of First Fruits. And so the parallel there, of course, with the New Testament celebration of Pentecost and the events of Acts chapter 2 is that we see the first fruits, the harvest of the church. We know that the church is going to go 2,000 years into the future to the very moment that I'm speaking. And even now, the Lord of the harvest, Jesus, is bringing forward men and women from the darkness of the world into the marvelous light of his kingdom. So there's a harvest continuing. But the first fruits, the first of the harvest began 2,000 years ago on this very day. Another significant matter, although it's extra biblical from what I can discern, um, there was a later tradition ascribed to the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot or Pentecost, and that is that this is also the day in which Moses gave the Torah to Israel at Mount Sinai. So there was kind of a, a dual significance then to Pentecost. It's the feast of first fruits and in gathering, acknowledge that God is the one who brings in the harvest. Therefore, we give him our first and our best. And it's also an acknowledgement, a celebration of the law given at Sinai. So for Christians, I think we can even see a dual significant for us as well. That Jesus is the greater than Moses, the prophet greater than Moses, who again, in the New Testament, is giving us the law of grace. He's giving us the gospel message, the charter of the new covenant people of God. And so that's what we're celebrating when we celebrate Pentecost. And I think what's so important in these times that you and I are in, because I don't know if you've done this, but when I start watching the news, I, I really start thinking about things and analyzing. And I think what happens is you, you sort of get thrust into the immediate you, you simply look and you go, okay, well, here's how we should handle this situation. Here's what I think happened. Here's what I think we need to wait to figure out. And then I think we need to deal with it this way. And if this doesn't stop happening or if this doesn't start happening, then we need to do this and this. And then we need to work together with these people. And you start getting into the immediate. And again, I want to acknowledge all of those things matter. But I think one of the things we have to be careful to do as Christians, and I would even say as human beings, is we don't want to be just led by our passions. So the Bible warns against being led by your passions. As a matter of fact, this is not a uniquely Christian idea. It's not even uniquely a religious idea. You can even go back so far to the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who in when he, he developed what is called a syllogism, because he felt that logic and thinking is what makes human beings different than the beasts, is our ability to reason. And so human beings are not really being human beings. They're being more like the beasts when they're led by their passions rather than their minds, their reasoning ability. 
And so he acknowledged that if, if Greece was going to rise up, if it was going to become great in the world, it needed to think deeply about things. It couldn't just feel its way through life and just act upon every whim of passion that might be there. I think this principle holds true for us as believers. One of the things we need to do before we rush into the immediate is take a step back and make sure that we're allowing the Word of God to transform our minds so that I'm thinking about everything that's happening in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's easy as you're watching the news, and from what I can see, whether you're a conservative or a liberal, most people's commentating doesn't come from a thoroughly Christian perspective. In some cases, it's a completely anti-Christian pagan perspective through which we're given, we're given the news. Even in cases where people claim to be Christian, I marvel at how unchristian many times their perspectives are. So for us as believers, we always need to go back to the Word of God. We need to allow our minds to be transformed and renewed by the Word of God. That our priorities, our categories, our values, our hierarchy of values, and our actions are all being conformed presently to the image of Jesus Christ. I think it's also important that you and I understand where true power lies. I think that is one of the great speaking points of Pentecost. Where does true power lie? Do you believe real power is out there somewhere? That if I just you know, grab a hold of, of, an, uh, of a podium in a university, if I grab a hold of this political party, if I settle this problem, is that real power? I think according to the Bible, it is not. It is not that it is unreal, but it is not true power. And I'll show you what I mean here in Acts chapter 2. So let's take a look. Again, I know it's a long section. I wanted you to get the gist of it, but I'm just going to comment on some various sections. And what I want to give to you today are some principles, some guidelines, a roadmap for you and I as Christians through this unparalleled, unprecedented time. So let's begin by looking at verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Number one, notice that the believers were united together as one. Write that down. The believers were united together as one. Are believers united together as one right now? Again, I, I could be wrong. It could just be my narrow field of view. I would love to hear from you. Again, I want our church to be a church where dialogue is possible, conversation. Um, that's why we've, and again, when we've done our community groups, I look forward to getting those going again. Part of the format is dialogue. I, I believe preaching is important. I believe uh, the power of just preaching, which in form is a bit of, it's a monologue, right? So it's a monologue, mono meaning one, one way. But I also believe dialogue is important. Conversation is important, not just for our body as a whole, but for myself included. I value dialogue. I love dialogue. So much of the sharpening and equipping in my life personally has come through dialogue. So we want to create room for that. But from what I'm seeing, that the church is not united. Many, many Christians and pastors are coming out. And by the way, this is, I'm talking all over the map. So 
with the COVID-19 thing, I, I was seeing emerging division and polarization, um, even accusations between pastors, local pastors, prominent pastors, people, I, I might even consider them to be good, gifted men, and yet hurling the accusation at one another that if you don't do things my way, you're not really in the spirit, you're not being faithful, you're just doing this and that, and, and throwing it back and forth, forgetting, well, maybe maybe we can be united underneath in our theology, which we need to make sure that we are, but then perhaps we'll go about things differently depending on where we are, and perhaps that's biblically permissible. Sometimes people fail to forget that. So even with regard to the COVID-19 and, and everything related to that, seeing polarization and division. Now, of course, we're seeing what happened in Minneapolis. Now, I will say this, again, maybe it's my narrow field of view. I have not seen a single person, not one, of any background say that what that officer did in Minneapolis was right. Not one. I've seen, this is where I've seen unity. I've seen every single person I know, from every background I know, condemn that as evil, vile, and wrong. Now, the difference will be is what should be done, how should it be done, when should it be done, why should it be done, and it starts getting more and more divisive after that. So I'm just seeing that there's division all over the place, and I'm not even talking about the world. We already know the country's divided politically. We know that. There's a nice big fat line right practically down the middle and very hostile and very antagonistic one another. We know that, but that's not the church. Uh, the United States government and, and the body politic is not the church. So, But what I'm talking about is the church. There's so much division in the church. And I think one of the first steps forward, and I mean this practically, one of the first steps forward for the church, when we're talking about responding, I think we need to ask the question, are we united together as one? Are we united together as one? Or are we actually divided and then we're rushing to act and to speak and then now, once that's all out, there are people realizing we're divided and now they're just fighting and arguing and even condemning and name-calling and things like that. So I believe one of the first things we need to do is follow what we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. They were all gathered together in one accord. I think this is vital. Um, now, if you look at the Greek of chapter 2, verse 1, um, you might say that the, the New King James made, a, uh, made it sound a little bit more... Um, it emphasized this idea of oneness of accord. Um, that word accord isn't, isn't quite there. Um, but I think it's justified. Um, because if you go back to chapter 1, verse 14, look at what it says there. These all, so that's the 120, uh, including the 12 apostles, these all continue together with one accord or one mind in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Um, so again, what the New King James is doing, even though maybe the, the Greek, the one accord is not there, it is in verse 14 and they're carrying the idea forward, which I think contextually and in, um, in, in idea is justified. So they were gathered together in one accord. So a few things about this. Number one, you have to gather together. Now, again, I'm not saying that means physically, but what I do think needs to happen is believers of different churches, pastors of different churches, need to be meeting together and talking these things out. It actually needs to happen. We don't want to be an isolated island that is not connected at all to the mainland. 
That, that's never wise. Proverbs says it's not wise. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound judgment. We are not to be isolated in our opinions and then rush forward on social media or whatever it is to, to make our ideas known. I think it's important that we're together. And that means we're actually conversing about these things. I know I have a pastor's meeting scheduled uh, this Friday for a whole network uh, of pastors. We're going to be discussing many things, including the things going on. Been meeting with local pastors uh, via Zoom and just talking about, hey, what's going on in your church? How is this going? What what are ways we can respond? How can you do this? What What's working for you guys? What's not? And, and discussing those kinds of things. I think that's so important. And that's not just important for pastors, although I think that's vital. But I think that's important for all of you, for believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be dialoguing and gathering together and working these things through and make sure that we're united. I believe it's very important. You see, that's where the power is. I don't think it's an accident that the church was gathered together in one accord when the Spirit was poured out. They were gathered together. And notice this too, if you go back to verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, they were praying. They were seeking the Lord together in prayer. And I think one of the reasons this is the case is because they had no other choice. You know, I mean, ironically, freedom can occupy you, can almost make you a slave to decisions. You know, if you don't have a choice in a matter, you're like, all right, I just have to suck it up and I got to do this thing. When you have when you have choices, when you have freedom, you've got all these things and now you're distracted with all these choices. During the early church, they had no political vote. They had no say. They weren't wealthy. They didn't have a bunch of money. They could hire people that could lobby for them and push the Christian cause and, and get laws passed in their favor. That wasn't going to happen. They didn't even have that option. And again, I'm not saying those things are wrong per se. I'm just making a point. They didn't happen. And yet this church is still the church that turned the world upside down. They were gathered together. They were humble. They were seeking the Lord. They were together as one. And I believe it is so important that believers right now, this is step one, before we rush out there and start uniting, you know, together with non-believers against a fellow Christian, like Christians need to be together on this. That's what I believe. The church needs to be one. All these old excuses of, well, I don't like the way you do worship and, and I don't like that you sprinkle when you baptize and this, that, and the other. I think the time for all that is over. We need to be united as one in Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about a false uniformity. I'm talking about a genuine spiritual unity that is the gift of God to his people in the spirit. And that's what we have here. So the believers were united together as one. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Notice where the power comes from. It says that suddenly there came a sound from heaven. Notice this. True power comes from heaven, not from earth. True power comes from heaven, not from earth. What do I mean? I mean that all the ordinary things that you and I would do if we were not Christians to get things done. How would you make something happen? How would you make change? What would you go about doing? Would you would you use your money to do that? Would you use your, your political leverage to do that? Uh, what would you do? What, what are the means that people on earth who don't have Jesus, what do they do to get the kind of kingdom they want to get? What do they do? 
What I'm saying is that's not true power. True power is the way of Jesus. True power is the message of Jesus, and it is the life of Jesus. That is true power. It does not come from this world. It comes from heaven. Now, I was thinking about this because, again, I think for many people, and I'm even seeing some Christians say this in social media, um, that that's weakness. Pastor Mike, what you're actually advocating for is weakness. When you say true power does not come from earth um, through political operatives and lobbying and, and money and, and all this kind of stuff, you're, you're just helping people to stay in a bad position. I believe that's 100% false. I understand why you feel that way. That's a normal, natural reaction. I don't think the way of Jesus has anything to do with the way I normally feel about doing anything. <laughs> I think the way of Jesus, it's why most of the world doesn't do it. It does not come natural. It is supernatural in nature. That's exactly my point. And the true power that comes from heaven, here's the trick. It looks like weakness, not like power. The power of God looks like weakness, not like power. Look at the cross. Does that look like a good way to start a kingdom? Crucify your king. Let him die at the hands of wicked and unjust people in a kangaroo court in a horrible, awful way, cruel and unusual punishment. Do we think that's wise? Paul talks about this. The gospel offends everybody. To the Jews, it's foolishness. To the, or excuse me, to the Greeks, it's foolishness. And to the Jews, a stumbling block. It doesn't come across as normal and natural to anyone. It comes across like weakness. That's what it looks like. But as Paul says, the weakness of God is mightier than the power of men. The way of Jesus looks like weakness, but actually it is power. Now, I want you to think about something. This was a real historical moment. It's recorded in the Bible, but this is real history. You'll remember that Jesus was falsely convicted. Falsely convicted by the Jewish religious court. And yet, because they were occupied by the Romans, they did not have the political ability to execute him. But they threatened with rioting, and we know that Pilate was on his last leg politically. If he had already blown it a number of times, and if he allowed another riot, he was going to be deposed and perhaps flogged, beaten, or killed. Something like that. It was going to be bad. So again, if the Jews threatened to riot, that threatened Pilate. So he's in this political turmoil where, gosh, I got, I kind of, I got to do what they want, even though I found, I haven't found Jesus to be guilty, but I don't want a riot happening because then I'm going to be in trouble with Caesar, and that might be the end of my story. So I'm not going to allow that to happen. So, but, but Pilate feels bad because he knows Jesus is innocent. So again, he wants this completely off of him. He doesn't want to be responsible. That's a typical politician. He doesn't want to be responsible for his decisions. Side note. So here's what he does, and this is quite interesting. He says, I have a tradition, and every year I allow you to set one prisoner free. So who do you want to go free? Barabbas or Jesus? Barabbas or Jesus? And I want you to note who Barabbas is, who Jesus was, and what the choice was. So we know Jesus. I think most of us know Jesus. Jesus never picked up a sword. Jesus never shot anybody. Jesus never beat anybody. Jesus didn't destroy Roman property or, or anything else. 
He didn't do that. The worst thing he ever did, again, was actually against his own people group, which is quite interesting. And he flipped over their money tables and rebuked them. Okay, that, that's kind of like the word and made a whip of cords and drove everybody out. But what's very interesting is that you have Jesus, whose way was peace. And you have Barabbas, whose way was violence. We're told that Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. So he is somebody who sought to bring a kingdom. You have two different pictures of what power looks like. You got the power through Jesus, the power through love, obedience to God, the way of peace. And you have Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the rioter, and the murderer. And who does the crowd pick to go free? Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And let me, I, that sounds like such a bizarre choice, doesn't it? But I think we can bring it home today. It's really not bizarre. I actually think it's very normal and common. I think apart from the Holy Spirit, when times are tough, it makes sense to the natural man. And remember, the Bible says the natural man is dead spiritually. They do not have the Spirit of God. They are dead as far as God is concerned. Alive in the world, dead to God. To the natural man, Barabbas is the way of power. That is how you get things done. That's how you change things. Jesus, that's not how, you don't get anything done, you lose. If anything, it's worse. You don't just not get things done, you lose. Worse things happen. You get run over, you're a doormat, you're a pushover, you're, a, you know, you're just, you're weak, and you can't get anything done that way. And so the crowds shout, give us Barabbas. They chose an insurrectionist over Jesus. And I would suggest to you, that's a contrast of power. Where do you believe power comes from? Because if you can't answer that correctly today, you make the same mistake the crowds made 2,000 years ago. And you can finally maybe identify with the crowds. You can understand why they felt that way. Because the way of Jesus is not the way that our hearts would naturally go. The way of Jesus does look like weakness. The cross does look like weakness. Loving your enemies and praying for them looks like weakness. Yes, it does. The world says that's foolish. That's rubbish. You can never make change that way. And yet, friends, Christianity has changed the world. How did it do that? After Acts chapter 2, did the disciples say, hey, we really liked Jesus. He was a great guy. We, we loved him even. But he had a program of peace, and we all know that doesn't work. We're going to pick up the sword. We're going to become like Islam. Again, I, I understand Muhammad and, and Islam, historically speaking. It was a kingdom of the sword. It's like, look, if you don't get conversions through, through love and sharing, well, then put a sword to their throat and say, if you don't convert, you die. Again, that's, that's not peculiar to Islam. That's, that's just worldly power. That's the power of the sword. But the power of the sword is not the way of Jesus. And so I say to you this morning, true power comes from heaven. Don't get sucked up into what the rest of the world is. There's a cyclone, just this swirling tornado, and it's sucking everybody in. And it's saying to everybody, this is the way of true power, earthly power. But I want to submit to you this morning, that is not true power. True power comes from heaven. True power comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is enabling us to live, love, and speak 
like Jesus. So in this time, and again, I'm not ignorant of what earthly power can do. I can't be as a Christian. Earthly power put Jesus on a cross. I can't be ignorant of it. I can't be naive and think all governments are good. I can't be naive and say, oh, the justice system will always work. I have a crucified Savior who is innocent. How can I possibly believe any human government is going to be without sin? I can't believe it. I'm not allowed. But I also don't believe that any human government is earthly where true power lies. That's the tension that the people of God, followers of Jesus, must maintain in this world. And it is very, very difficult. And it is very tempting and very alluring at certain times, especially when our fear and our panic and anger and resentment and revenge start taking hold of our emotions. Our brains that are supposed to be transformed by the word of God begin shutting off and suddenly raw human emotion depart from the love and spirit of God begins to take over. And that knows no bounds, ladies and gentlemen. There is no conservative liberal when it comes to anger and hatred and believing that power comes from this world. That can permeate any group of people at any time because it's a human problem. It goes back to Adam, our shared ancestor, in whom all of us have fallen into sin. And therefore, we are by default corrupt and depraved and go after the wrong things the wrong way. We need Jesus. True power comes from heaven, not from earth. Verses 3 and 4. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I want you to notice that the first gift of the Spirit was a speaking gift. The first gift of the Spirit was a speaking gift. Notice the first gift was not healing the sick or raising the dead or giving sight to the blind or hearing to the deaf. It wasn't any of those things. It was a speaking gift. That is very interesting. It was the gift of communication, the ability to communicate with people unlike you was the first gift to the church. And if that's the first gift, when the church was birthed, when the Spirit was poured out on the people of God, friends, I believe we need that gift today. Do we have the ability to communicate to people unlike us? Or have we devolved into merely human finite modes of speech in which we only understand, speak, and listen to people who look and act exactly like us? The gift, the first gift of the church was a speaking gift, particularly the ability to speak to people unlike us. We must recover, and again, I believe this is supernatural, but that doesn't mean, supernatural does not mean you make no effort, that you are not involved. It doesn't mean sitting around and waiting for, for, for the divided tongue to come upon me. God may do that. He did do that. But what if he wants me to learn another language? What if I actually have to enroll in a class and I got to take all the hours to, to learn another language? What if maybe we speak the same language, but never think that just because you speak the same language that you have the same culture? What if it means me sitting down and spending hours and hours and hours just understanding a person unlike me before we can even really tackle some of the big issues? 
See, I think people want to argue without understanding today. I think even Christians want to argue without understanding. But let us look at the text. The first gift God gives to the church is the gift of speaking to people unlike us. The ability to communicate, to communicate well, for communication to be a two-way street is nothing that we should take lightly, but it is a task of the church. And I would say that's an act of love. If you love someone, you communicate with them. You don't say, I love you, but I refuse to speak to you. You don't say, I love you, but I refuse to understand what you, what you mean when you say those words. I will simply transpose and transmit onto your words what I think you mean without ever checking to see if that's actually what you mean. Love pursues authentic communication, which goes both directions. I think it is no small thing that the first gift was a speaking gift to the church, namely the ability to communicate with people unlike us. Look at verses 5 through 13 now. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these all Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own language the wonderful works of God. We see that God's plan for the church is to transcend all cultural barriers. That every person from every tribe, tongue, and nation, no matter how similar or how different they might be, they are all invited into the very same spirit-filled church. So the church from the very beginning is multi-ethnic. We see in the Old Testament, for the most part, Israel is mono-ethnic. It's basically one group, although we have hints, as we talked about last week. There was hints of other ethnicities, but they were never the core. They were never the majority. It was ethnic Israelites. But here at the very beginning already, we're seeing diversity at the very heart of the church. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, again, notice this is probably because this is a pilgrimage festival, so people from all over the world were already gathering here. Now, it probably was a, a fair number of people that were ethnic Jews, and if you're not an ethnic Jew, if you're on the outside, again, this is an outsider perspective. Outsiders and insiders of groups don't have the same perspective. An outsider might say, oh, well, you're all Jews, so you're all the same. The insider says, no, they're Galilean. You don't get it. We don't, you know, we have a different culture background. Yes, you know, we're here, you know, we're celebrating at the same temple. Yes, that's true. And, and we have some things, but honestly, we have a different canon. Some of the books of our Bible are a little bit different. Our language is different. Uh, we actually have a bad history. Our people group have been fight. You don't understand. But to you on the outside, you think we're all the same, but we're really not. 
So remember, even though it looks like, again, predominantly there's the, the race, you'd say, well, it's Jews. But again, the ethnicity, the culture is actually very, very different. And it does go down even to say both Jews and proselytes. Now, a proselyte would not be a Jew. That's a non-Jew. So we already have non-Jews gathered. And look at all the nations. This is sort of just nations giving us a sense of universality that already from all over the world on the very first day, God is gathering in people from all over the world and he's making them one new people group in Jesus the Messiah. Now, some scholars would say that the text itself does not speak of the Tower of Babel and therefore reference to it just is, is kind of reading into the text. Fair enough, I don't see the Tower of Babel mentioned here. But how can you miss it from a redemptive historical perspective that God's program, God's policy towards the nations is changing radically right before our eyes? What was God's policy? What was his economy? What was his dispensation of dealing with the nations in the past? It goes back to Babel. His purpose was, his way of dealing, scatter the nations, give them divided tongues, an opposite of this kind. Here's the gift of divided tongues that makes them one so they can all hear. At Babel, they're united against God. The only kind of unity sinful man can have is unity against God. That's the only kind it can have. People without Jesus, without the gospel, without the Holy Spirit, you've got two options in the world. You've got uniformity, which is tyranny. That's, that's your option. Everything is moving to then. If you're fighting for unity, but you don't have Jesus, what it'll end in, and we've seen this happen in history, is uniformity and tyranny. On the other hand, diversity without any basis for unity is anarchy. You're seeing that play out now. Diversity with no basis for unity is anarchy. So what's the answer? If unity is not the answer because you end up with uniformity and tyranny, and diversity is not the answer because you end up with division and anarchy, who, how shall we then be saved? The answer is Jesus, because Jesus is the second person of the triune God, God who is himself both one and three, unity and diversity in God. And in Jesus, God provides both a unifying means, a unifying basis, which we can all come together, and yet a means in which diversity can actually and rightly be acknowledged and celebrated without devolving into anarchy. And the unity is not uniformity. That is the gift of the gospel, the gift of unity and versity in the triune God through Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. So we are seeing this actually happening. We're seeing a reversal of God's policy in the world. There was a time and a place for the nations to have divided tongues and to be scattered and for God to focus on Israel. And God's primary program for reaching the nations was through the ethnic nation of Israel. No longer in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, God now says, all of you that I have scattered through divided tongues, I am now giving the gift of the Spirit. I'm overcoming those barriers and I'm bringing you all together as one new people, not defined by ethnicity, not defined by race, not defined by gender, not defined by your socioeconomic status or your political affiliation, but by one criteria and one criteria only. Will you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thus be saved. That becomes the basis for unity. And God brings all these people in and he is doing it right here in this very text. 
The Holy Spirit and the gospel transcends. What the world outside the church is trying to do is trying to do this without God. It's the Tower of Babel story once again. It's we will make a name for ourselves. We'll do unity and diversity our way apart from God. And it's not going to end well. I've seen this story already. It will not end well. But what I have also seen is another story, an alternate story, a story that has an assured ending for all those who believe. And it is the story of the gospel. In the church, God is bringing together and he's starting over. Salvation in Christ, as the church fathers would say, is like unto Noah's ark. And Noah's ark, God says, I'm going to gather the righteous together for myself. I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to preserve the righteous remnant. And I'm going to start over again, a new world. That's what God is going to do in the church, but he's gathering. It's not every kind of animal, but every kind of man and woman from every tribe, tongue, and nation, too, of every kind. And he's bringing them together in Jesus, saving them all from the wrath to come. And he's going to restart new creation, new heaven, new earth, forever, forever and ever. That is what God is doing. And so the church should be working to be who we are. We always were, from day one, a multi-ethnic community. And it wasn't simply because we tried to be one per se, but it is rather consistent with the God of all the earth, the God who made man in his image, the God who couldn't bear to watch man destroy himself day after day, but sent Jesus, who is the image of God, to restore man to the image of God, which he was always meant to be, but never could be without Jesus. So we, you can see, I think the treasure of the gospel is something, again, the world wants the fruit of it. I believe the world wants the fruit of this. They do not want the way. They do not want the way. They want to enter the gate, but they do not want to take the path. But there is no way to get through the gate, but through the path. Narrow is the path. Difficult is the way that leads to life. Few there are that travel by it, but wide is the way and broad the road that leads to destruction, and many there are that travel by it. Friends, I believe we have a beautiful and precious truth, a precious truth to be lived and offered to the people of this world. And the means of entering in is not become like me, it's not speak my language. It's not dress like me, act like me, do your hair like me, uh, like the same things that I like, the same. It has nothing to do with that. My basis for fellowship has nothing to do with that. There is one basis, and it is the basis that Peter gives in verses 14 through 21. Look at it with me. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the Lord shall be saved. 
you'll notice that the promise of the Holy Spirit transcends all cultural barriers. God does not say, unless you're an ethnic Jew, you don't get the Spirit. Unless you're a non-Jew, you don't get the Spirit. Unless you're a male, you don't get the Spirit. Unless you're female, you don't get the Spirit. Unless you're rich, unless you're poor, unless you're black, unless you're white. There is no barrier for the Spirit. So the Spirit is the basis for unity. It's nothing out there. You're not going to find it on the news or Wikipedia. Oh, here's our, here's our new basis for unity. The unity is the gift of the Spirit that God gives all his people. It's something that is not worked for, but gifted by God's grace through repenting and believing in Jesus. Now, I know this, what we're going through right now, it feels like the end of the world. And by the way, maybe it is. Maybe Jesus is coming back soon. I think he is. Anyway, the Bible always says Jesus is coming soon. You're meant to live like he's coming soon. But one of the things I think we need to make sure we're biblical about is our use of that phrase, last days. Many people will say, I think we might be living in the last days. Well, biblically, the answer is yes. And the answer is it began 2,000 years ago. Look at what Peter says. Notice that it's actually, Peter stood up and said, these are not drunk, verse 16, but this, what you're seeing right now, Peter's saying, what you guys are seeing with the outpouring of the Spirit, the gift of tongues, and everyone hearing in their own language, the marvelous works of God, let me interpret what you're seeing. Verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Peter is saying the last days is an age. It's a change in God's program. This is what I was talking about with the, the difference in dispensation or administration. God scattering the nations, working through Israel. God now gathering them all in. This is called the last days. It's about how God is moving and acting in the world. And it's not identical to the way he was doing it before. This is called the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. It is an age. By the way, to really make this point clear, you can actually go to Joel in the Hebrew. And if you go to Joel in the Hebrew, there's a missing phrase that is not included, That excuse me, that Peter includes that's not there. If you go to the Hebrew text, it just says, and after this, it shall come to pass. And after this, okay, after this, that could be whenever. Peter adds the phrase after in these last days. Peter interprets this as marking the beginning of the last days. So we are in an age called the last days. It's marked by the gift of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit. Some call it the church age. You can look at it on a global level. The way God is relating to the nations is not the same way as he was doing in the Old Testament. But gathering every people group together as one in the New Testament church. So we're in the last days. I think if we want to be more biblical and clear and precise with our language, we what many people mean is, I think we're approaching the last day, singular. The last day, singular, when Christ returns to the earth. That's the last day. I know at the last day, remember Martha says, my brother will live again at the last day. We are in the last days. The last day is what is approaching, the day that Jesus comes. And again, as you see what's going around the world, you certainly have to look up, don't you? 
You certainly have to look up and believe that your redemption draweth nigh. That again, as we're seeing the groanings and the birth pangs, not just of creation, but of humanity. Humanity is crying out and groaning and it is, and the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, the scripture says. And so I believe, again, the world is groaning out for redemption. Paul said in Romans, our redemption is nearer now than when we first believed. That is always true. The return of Christ is sooner now than it ever was in your life. Whether we're watching the end of the United States of America as we know it, or the end of the world when Jesus comes back, we don't yet know. We shall see. Many nations have risen or fallen since the time of that Pentecost Sunday. But we can be assured that no matter what happens, the Lord of the harvest, the giver of the Spirit, the Spirit baptizer, is with us and for us and has a plan and purpose for who we are as a community today. Lastly, look at verses 22 through 39. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. I want you to notice a couple of things right there. Verse 23, number one, even though people are responsible for what they do, including wicked people, they are responsible for what they do, and we hold them responsible for what they do, and no doctrine of predestination or the sovereignty of God is intended or rightly can take away human responsibility. Humans are 100% responsible. Peter says, you have taken, you have crucified. And yet, he also says, as mysterious as this is, according to the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, even these wicked people, this violent mob, seized Jesus, corrupted the justice system, killed him brutally and horribly. Yet God had predetermined that it happened. Because what he was going to bring out of it was better than what could have happened had he prevented it. So according to the determination of the foreknowledge of God, we can trust that all things are ultimately working together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And notice this also. Notice that in the crucifixion, there are no innocent bystanders. Everyone is guilty. You'll notice you have both a minority group and a majority group. You've got the Jewish group, but they're occupied by the Romans. And notice, both are guilty of killing Jesus. Sort of in, in history, many people will take turns blaming. Some people will say it's the Jews, the, the ethnic, racial Jews, they killed Jesus. The Romans killed Jesus. The Romans literally were the instrument that killed Jesus. Pilate could have said no. He did not. He valued his own life and his own career. He did not care about justice. He was a pragmatist. On the other hand, I've seen more modern people blame the Romans as though only the Romans did it and that Jesus' own people had nothing to do with it. What you see in the crucifixion is everyone is complicit. Every single one of us, it doesn't matter who we are or where we come from, what part of the world, what language, what background, we are all guilty. We are all guilty. 
Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not even one. So there is no basis for self-righteousness of anyone. We are all equally, ironically, united together as lost, desperate, depraved sinners, guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. Everyone is complicit. There is no group that's inherently fine. We are all sinful and depraved apart from the grace of God. Verse 24, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried in his tomb, and is with us to this day. So he can't have been talking about himself. He was talking about the one to come. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, listen to this, whom you crucify. That's a phrase everyone has to hear as being directed to them. You'll never receive Jesus as Christ if you don't understand that you crucified him. I crucified him. We are all guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, verse 37, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You see in verse 38 the invitation to life, the invitation to the peace of God, the invitation to the way of Jesus, the invitation to what true power in this world actually looks like, an invitation to the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it all comes through the means of Jesus. He is the way, the, true, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by him. He is the door. He is the path. He is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. The response must be repent. And let everyone be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, knowing that the gift of the Spirit, the Spirit that will unite us together as one,
the spirit that enables us and grants us true heavenly power that looks like weakness to the world, but actually causes us to become more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. Friends, I believe the gospel has always been valid. I believe the gospel is as valid now as it ever was 2,000 years ago when Peter stood up and declared it there in the city of Jerusalem. And yet I do come before you during desperate times with a heart full of grief, but also a heart full of hope. I believe now is the time for all of you to evangelize. It is a time for all of you to share the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Now is the time for you to overcome by the gift and empowering of the Spirit and, and love and truth, to overcome any barriers that there might be, that we're called to this, that this is who we are as a people. This is who we are as a church. The world needs us to be who we are. It, we don't just harm ourselves when we fail to be the church. We are hurting the world. Because Jesus says, we are the salt and the light. And if the salt loses its savor and the light goes dim, what can you expect the world to do? I think we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and say, are we being the salt and the light? Are we being the spirit-empowered community of Jesus? And if so, we should see an impact on the world around us. Let us pray, each one of us today, that we will repent confess our sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and that God will send us all out into the world as agents of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I, as I see the world growing darker and darker, dimmer and dimmer, more confusing, Lord, I just pray that your people would call upon your name. I pray that we would not be divided amongst ourselves, but rather united as one in the Holy Spirit, that we would understand that our true identity is in Christ. It is not in all the other things that the world would want to push upon us, whatever labels the world assigns, whether uh, that seems advantageous or disadvantageous, Lord, in the world. We believe who we are is Jesus' people. We are people of faith. We are of the household of faith, the family of faith. And so, Lord, I just pray you would pour out your Holy Spirit on your people. Lord, I believe we need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We need you to give us words to speak. It said that the Spirit appeared upon them as divided tongues, giving them utterance. Lord, I believe you need to give us utterance today. How should we speak? How should we listen? What should we do? Lord, let everything that we do and everything that we say be conformed to the glorious image of your son, Jesus. Help us resist the evil temptation of trying to mold Jesus into our image. Rather, I pray we would be molded into his. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.